This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. And welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Australians for Coal, All In with Chris Hayes, The Majority Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Green News Report, Moyers and Company, and Activism from Best of the Left. And apologies in advance for this episode not providing equal time to the uninformed, unscientific, or maliciously misleading. I recognize this creates an unfair bias in favor of facts. As a company, we have an absolute commitment to the principle of action on climate change. We're very proud of our values. But as one of the major contributors to CO2 emissions, and as we begin to contend with the real-world effects of climate change, we have to prepare ourselves for the next step in addressing our corporate responsibilities in this area. While the steps on the surface seem to be in opposition to our self-interest, The reality is, however, that they are actually in opposition to our self-interest. So we recognise what we call the gap. The gap is the problem of simultaneously holding two contradictory positions. On one hand, to act on our responsibility to humanity. But on the other hand, to deliver on our commitment to superior value for our shareholders. We needed to take a leap of faith an intuitive step outside of the limitations of science-based argument. I am proud to announce the company's new policy of fuck you. Fuck you is more than a policy. It's a philosophy where we are able to straddle the dichotomy between what we know is true and how we can benefit by ignoring that truth. Fuck you means we can be passionate about our values, but not act on them. Fuck you takes what would be our present-day financial burden away from us and transforms it into a chronic, economic, social, cultural and political crisis for future generations. The genius of this, however, is that we transferred it away from us. It ensures solid returns to our shareholders by killing their grandchildren. With this policy, we delay action and leverage the gap and are able to maintain our role as a global leader in destroying the planet. Ultimately, this is a reflection of the values of our shareholders. Everyday Australians have chosen to invest $20 billion into the company. But we prefer to think of it as 20 billion fuck yous to the Australians of tomorrow. There will come a day when my moral choices will no longer be beholden to the shareholders and a wave of profound regret and a sorrow will engulf me as I uh, realise with painful clarity the enormity of the damage I have perpetrated upon humanity and Even if I plead with whoever has succeeded my role in the company to stop putting CO2 in the air for the sake of my daughter's grandchildren, he or she can turn to me and simply respond with, fuck you. And that legacy really does make me very proud.
Today is Earth Day, but don't expect to be hearing that from certain members of Congress. You know, if you own the land, every day is Earth Day. I'm Madam Speaker. I rise today on Earth Day to introduce legislation that will clean up a significant environmental problem in southern Utah. The fact Utah. is, as we approach Earth Day and we celebrate uh, a much cleaner environment for America. This is, uh, uh, has been Earth Day this week and Earth Week. Uh, people talk about saving the environment. There was a time when Republicans, even ones who fought against environmental regulation, paid at least a little lip service to Earth Day. Let me compliment the House of Representatives on this Earth Day 1999 on a bipartisan basis. Those days are over. In fact, according to a search of the congressional record by the Sunlight Foundation, Republicans in Congress haven't uttered the words Earth Day since Senator Lamar Alexander said it in 2010. Mr. President, today is Earth Day. And that's just a small glimpse of a much larger and more dangerous trend the Republican Party marching backwards on the environment and climate change. Because it wasn't always this way. As far back as 1988, Republican vice presidential nominee Dan Quayle promised a Republican ticket would deal with the dangers of climate change. The greenhouse effect is an important environmental issue. It is important for us to get the data in to see what alternatives we might have to the fossil fuels. The next year, Congressman Newt Gingrich co-sponsored the Global Warming Prevention Act that warned the Earth's atmosphere is being changed at an unprecedented rate by pollutants resulting from human activities. George H.W. Bush signed the UN framework to prevent further global warming, promised U.S. leadership. We all know that human activities are changing the atmosphere in unexpected and in unprecedented ways. In 2003, then-governor of Massachusetts Mitt Romney wrote that power plant pollution is harming the climate and hailed Massachusetts as the first state to enact a cap on CO2. Even George W. Bush said that humans were causing climate change. Let's not recognize that the surface of the earth is warmer and that an increase in greenhouse gases caused by humans is contributing to the problem. And by 2008, the GOP platform called for the party to address the risk of climate change based on sound science. John McCain dedicated an entire speech to the topic. The facts of global warming demand our urgent attention, especially in Washington. Addressing climate change was genuinely a bipartisan issue. We don't always see eye to eye, do we, Newt? No, but we do agree our country must take action to address climate change. And then Barack Obama was elected, and the Republican Party started running backwards, trying to override the president to speed up offshore drilling, fighting Democrats on cap-and-trade and basic EPA regulations, even uniting against light bulb standards championed by George W. Bush. There should be some self-examination from the administration on the idea that you favor a woman's right to an abortion, but you don't favor a woman or a man's right to choose what kind of light bulb. With Obama as president, Republicans no longer had the guts to say the very obvious truth. The world is warming because of human activity. My view is that we don't know what's causing climate change on this planet. I actually don't know whether global warming is occurring. Uh, the vast majority of the National Academy of Science says it is. A, a minority says it is not. Climate's always changing. That's not the fundamental question. The fundamental question is whether man-made activity is, the, is what's contributing most to it. The question is why. There's a lot of possible answers. This 2013 headline could have something to do with it. Because as the great Upton Sinclair once said, 
It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. I guess God giveth and God taketh awayeth. Um, apparently, there has been a major discovery by these scientists involved in this cottage industry trying to promote the Big Bang Theory. Waves of gravity, this is reported by the AFP, that rippled through space right after the Big Bang have been detected for the first time According to U.S. scientists, uh, on, uh, said on Monday, the detection was made with the help of a telescope called BICEP-2, stationed at the South Pole, that measures the oldest light in the universe. Apparently they made this discovery like three years ago, and they have been studying and testing to make sure that their results were accurate. It is the first direct evidence of cosmic inflation a theory that the universe expanded by a hundred trillion trillion times, a hundred trillion trillion times, in barely the blink of an eye, the waves were produced in a rapid growth spurt f uh, 14 billion years ago. They were predicted in Einstein's nearly century-old theory of general relativity, but were never found until now. I just watched a video of a scientist, I think, from Stanford, going to the home of a guy who had sort of enhanced this theory, I guess, and he told them at the door, we discovered point two something, and like in half a phrase, the guy almost broke down. I didn't understand any of it. Apparently, the telescope targeted a specific area of the sky known as the Southern Hole, which is outside of the galaxy where there's very little dust or um, galactic material uh, to interfere with, I guess, these light waves. Um, I, I'm not going to pretend to know any of this. And this is coming on the same day that there is another report by a Nobel Prize uh, winning scientist and about 1,200 other scientists on the reality of man-made global warming. Now, because I don't understand any of this stuff about the Big Bang Theory, I guess I should just start criticizing it as being just some cottage industry where these guys with a telescope are obviously trying to make money by pretending the Big Bang Theory was real and just justifying what they did. Uh, the, old, uh, the elderly scientist who answered that door on this video that I saw was clearly uh, just excited because he thought, 
Oh, great! Now I'll finally cash in. But uh, this is what those uh, climate science denialers uh, would have us believe, that all scientists are bunk, that they're just in pursuit for a buck. That's why 1,200 uh, scientists came out with something like a 98% assuredness of man-made global climate change. In this report, it was Mario Molina who uh, won a Nobel Prize for his work on fluorocarbons going into the atmosphere. I'm sorry, did I say uh, 1,200? 121,000 scientists made up this group that has put out this report. 120,000 scientists, all in the league of cottage industry scientists trying to make money off of this report, I guess. It's just, it's, it's just stunning. Just stunning. So annoyed. Uh, they always, it's, it's also just, it, it, it's fascinating when, I mean, you, you know, that piece in the New Yorker that came out, I think an issue or two ago about some researcher who had discovered, I think, some type of... Um, Adverse effects of some chemical, basically, and the industry went after this guy with not yes. just not just public relations. Try like, to get that author. Uh, that yeah, yeah, he, it's it's on, and and you know, not just PR funding, counter research, everything. I mean, the conversation about how corruptible science is is actually probably one of the most important conversations we could possibly have. Right. So they not only do they make this ludicrous charge about the climate science, they cloud and undermine a whole other conversation that we need to have that incidentally they wouldn't want to have either. All I need from you is a good conversation, conversation. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. It is bare o'clock all over the country right now. Whether you live out in the country or in the suburbs that are maybe adjacent to the country. Heck, even if you live in the Glendale neighborhood of Los Angeles, this is the time of year that you might run into a bear waking up from a long winter's nap. Obviously, looking for something to eat. Look at the guy. See, here comes the bear. Oh, geez, there's a bear. Uh, this is the time to take in your bird feeders, lest they end up twisted into gnarled handfuls of wire and mess, like the one in our front yard that Susan and I forgot to take down this weekend. 
Last fall, uh, we had on this show a Nebraska state senator named Ken Hare, who invented something designed to foil the hungry bears in your life. He calls his invention bear hooks. It's basically two little grappling hooks with a line between them. You put the hooks way up in a tree and use them to hoist your food or your trash way up into the air, away from your campsite, so you are not tempting bears to come tear your stuff apart. Senator Hare was here on this show last fall because in addition to inventing bear hooks, he also read legislation to get his state to look into how climate change was affecting Nebraska and what the state government should be doing to plan for those effects. Now, this is not an academic exercise in Nebraska or anywhere else. Nebraska has recently had historic drought conditions. It's also had historic flooding conditions. And they experienced both of those things not that far apart. But when Senator Bearhooks put forward his idea uh, to study climate change in the state, conservatives in the Nebraska state government blocked what he wanted to do. They said they would only let that climate change study go ahead if it did not study the fact that the climate was changing. One Republican state senator said, quote, I don't subscribe to global warming. He wrote an amendment to the legislation insisting that it not study anything that might have been caused by humans. And so the Nebraska legislature voted that the study of the climate change problem should not really study the problem. And all the state's major scientists then said they wanted nothing to do with it. And so then the whole thing got canceled in Nebraska. This is called the see no evil, hear no evil approach to scary public policy problems. It's a little like what we just described with Republicans denying the Obamacare sign-up numbers. The technical term for this in political science is la 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 la. I don't want to know. The same thing happened uh, in Virginia in, in 2012. The idea was floated, get it, floated, uh, for a study on the effects of climate change and sea level rise uh, on the coastal portion of Virginia. The Hampton Roads area in Virginia is considered to be the highest major flood risk zone in the country after New Orleans. But the Republican state delegate from Virginia Beach at the time insisted that Virginia should not study the effect of sea level rise on coastal Virginia because he said the term sea level rise is a left-wing term. And so Virginia is not allowed to study it. La, 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 la. Uh, same thing happened in North Carolina recently, where Republicans in the state legislature there set a ban on any decisions or any planning being based on estimates from a state-appointed panel of scientific experts, which predicted how much sea levels might rise on the North Carolina coast over the next few decades. Those estimates exist. They were produced by a state-appointed commission of scientific experts. But the prediction they made for what was going to happen on the coast of North Carolina, those predictions were scary. And so North Carolina Republicans decided to ban the state, ban the state by law, from paying attention to those scary predictions. La, 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 la. If you stick your head in the sand in this way, do you drown when the tide rushes up and covers the beach? We're all about to find out, all of us, because tomorrow in the United States Congress, the Republican-controlled House is about to take up a bill to have the whole country go la, 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 la when it comes to understanding what's happening to the planet right now and how we might plan to survive it. Today, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its latest international consensus scientific report saying, in effect, 
that the effects of climate change are already being felt around the globe. Everything from droughts in the Mediterranean to sea ice collapsing in the far north, which is eroding the coastline. Adaptations around the world include everything from needing to raise flood walls already and sea barriers to some coastal communities moving themselves away from the sea, or at least making plans to move away from the sea soon. So that international report came out today, and it is scary stuff. The effects of global warming and climate change have already started. What hope do we have of reversing these changes? What hope do we have of adapting to deal with them if we can't reverse them? This is, this is keep-you-up-at-night kind of stuff, unless you are, remember, uh, unless you are a member of the Republican-controlled House of Representatives. Because the plan in Congress tomorrow... Tomorrow, the day after this big, scary international report came out, what they're going to do in Congress tomorrow is that they're going to debate a new Republican idea that the United States government should stop working on this issue so much. We should at least stop studying it so we know less about it. Republican Congressman Jim Bridenstine of Oklahoma is due to get a floor vote tomorrow, as early as tomorrow, on his bill that would instruct the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to stop studying climate change so darn much. Mr. Speaker, global temperatures stopped rising 10 years ago. Global temperature changes, when they exist, correlate with sun output and ocean cycles. Congressman Sun Output says it is a scandal uh, that U.S. government scientists spend time studying the impact of climate change. Uh, in fact, he says the people of Oklahoma are ready for an apology from President Obama because government scientists have been studying climate change. This is what the Republicans did in Nebraska. This is what the Republicans did in Virginia. This is what they did in North Carolina. And now under John Boehner in Washington, they are trying to take national this patented approach to worrying about climate change. Don't worry about it. In fact, don't study it. Keep your heads in the sand. I have been whining for the last several weeks, last several months out here in California where we are in the middle of the worst drought on record, that it has been so hot this winter and over the past week in the 90s pushing 100 degrees in April. Well, it's not just out here in California by a long shot. Oklahoma and Kansas this week hit 100 degrees, their earliest moment on record hitting those high temperatures. And now the White House has a report that speaks exactly about these problems facing this country right now when it comes to global warming. Yep, that is the upshot of the report. Climate change is here, and it's happening now. That's what scientists from the landmark U.S. Climate Assessment Report say. It's a congressionally mandated assessment of the impacts of climate change here and in the future. It's led by the National Academies of Sciences, 13 federal agencies, and the Department of Defense. And it shows unequivocally that climate change is impacting every corner of the U.S. right now. Dr. Jerry Melillo, co-chair of the report. It is affecting us in our pocketbooks and on our land in every region of the United States. It is changing the lives of farmers, mayors, 
engineers, town planners, truckers, and foresters. The report breaks down these impacts by region and by economic sector to help public officials, planners, businesses, and individuals prepare. It says we're already seeing stronger deluges, more record floods, a longer wildfire season, deeper droughts, and heat waves are longer and more intense, just like Texas in 2011, Oklahoma over the weekend, and here in California, spiking our food prices. And just as I've been whining about for months. And it paints a grim picture of what's to come, warning that these impacts will accelerate unless we act swiftly on cutting emissions of greenhouse gases, predicting temperatures potentially could soar by as much as 10 degrees by 2100, melting Alaska and raising sea levels by two to four feet, threatening a trillion dollars worth of U.S. coastal real estate and infrastructure. And yet I was listening to Rush Limbaugh today and he says not only is none of this happening, there is absolutely no science to support it, that everything you're talking about, Desi Doyen, is based on computer model predictions for far, far out in the future. It's based on nothing that's actually happening today. And, of course, he's absolutely, completely, 100% wrong. How dare you? The report also details actions that we can take right now to reduce emissions, but the political climate for action is a problem. You think? The climate change denial industry and Republicans are already forcefully dismissing the new scientific assessment, but White House Senior Advisor John Podesta says they'll fail. They'll find various ways particularly in the House, to try to stop us from using the authority we have under the uh, under the Clean Air Act. All I, all I would say is that those have 0% chance of working. So if Congress wants to try to stop the president from taking action here, Podesta is saying he's going to use his executive authority to take action anyway. Yes, and President Obama already has done so, and he is also going to issue landmark new rules for the nation's dirtiest power plants coming up in June. And EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy tells MSNBC there is good news. The bright spot here is that we know that states and local communities across the U.S. have been taking action to reduce carbon pollution. So we can do this. That's what the president knows is our moral obligation to do. And the clean tech sector is booming and already all over this. They're using the new report to focus on innovation and which tech sectors are positioned for rapid growth by addressing climate change. Everybody living like there's no tomorrow. How could we make it better for today? If you would only turn the page You'd see a new chapter has begun The story of salvation and redemption The tale of the rising sun Cause you know we're making progress every day In the most profound and yet subtle ways. We all know how much conservatives, particularly red state conservatives and state house legislatures, hate taxes. So you might be surprised to learn of a tax bill that sailed through the Oklahoma state legislature. It passed by an 83 to 5 margin in the House with no debate. 63 Republicans and 20 Democratic votes in favor. It's expected to be signed by Republican Governor Mary Fallon. And it taxes something that Republicans tend not to like very much. Solar power. It allows utility companies to impose a surcharge on customers who install solar powers or small wind turbines. Here's the deal. 
If you install solar on your roof in most places in the U.S., including Oklahoma, there are many times where you generate more power than you use, and you can sell that power back to the grid, often at retail prices. Utility companies do not like that. They say solar power users aren't paying their, fit, paying their fair share of infrastructure costs, so utility companies have lobbied state legislatures in plenty of states across the country, including Oklahoma, to tax you. You see, utility companies call it a fee or a supercharge, but it's basically a monthly tax. And what does that do? It makes solar less appealing because there is no bigger threat to utility companies in the world than cheap, efficient solar energy. It blows the doors off the whole system. And look at what is happening to solar. Solar production costs per watt have been dropping and continue to drop. Someone is installing a solar power system in the U.S. every four minutes. That is why conservative groups like ALEC and industry groups have been pushing legislation from California to Maine to tax people who are using solar. Joining me now, Jigger Shaw. He's a founder of Sun Edison, solar energy provider, also author of Creating Climate Wealth. So, did the utility companies have a point here? Are you a moocher? If you put solar panels on your roof and you sell some of that power back, you're just using an infrastructure you don't pay for. Well, thanks for having me on. I think what's interesting here is that the solar industry has grown so fast that we've just snuck up on the utility companies, and they're trying to figure out which arguments will resonate, because in Oklahoma specifically, what you didn't uh, lead in with is that they've raised rates by over 20%. Oklahomans have actually had the fastest growing electricity rates since, 19, since 2010. And so if you... So you're talking about a state that's seen the highest growth in their electricity bills in the entire country since 2010. That's right. And so if you are suffering from in income inequality and other things, then that amount of money actually is material to you. Right. And what are your options? Self-generation of power. So if you're retired and you're on a fixed uh, Social Security benefits plan, well, if your electricity rates are going up faster than inflation, the only thing you can do to solve that problem is to fix them using solar power. And the utility companies see that as a huge threat. Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, is the whole concept of creating climate wealth is that the fact that oil prices are up 250%, the fact that electricity prices are up 50% since 2000 across the country, means that all of these technologies that we invented in America after the Arab oil crisis are now cost effective to deploy, and the utilities are scared out of their mind. Why is it a threat to the utility companies specifically for people to be generating their own power and selling it back to the grid. Like what about that challenges utility companies? Utility companies are still going to, you know, make money coming and going. They're going to sell power. They still own the grid. Like what 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 is their beef with it? So utility companies make money by investing money. And they choose not to invest money in solar, not to invest money in energy efficiency. So both of those things are a threat because it reduces the total amount of electricity people buy from them. But they're not making money on both sides of the deal. Now, they could choose to start investing in solar power and in energy efficiency, but they simply choose not to. What about this argument you hear from conservatives all the time that solar is basically this kind of hippie affectation, that it, it, it is essentially a welfare case, that it only is economical with enough tax credits and subsidies and cylindra, yada, yada, yada. Is it, is it, uh, can it compete in an open market right now? Well, what's important to note is that solar power prices have come down. So today we actually can work without tax credits. And many solar advocates are actually advocating that we retire solar tax credits by 2016 so that we can actually bring in a lot more uh, investors who can't take tax credits. Today, if my parents want to invest in solar power, they can't do it because they're not allowed by law to take the tax credits, whereas they can if they invest in oil and gas. Wait, explain that. Why not? So there's this 
this notion of active-passive loss rules, which means if you're a doctor, which my dad is, uh -huh. you cannot use those tax credits against your income from your job. You uh -huh. can only use it against, let's say, rental income or other things that you have. But if you invest in an oil and gas drilling rig, you can use those tax credits against your job. It's another loophole the oil and gas so industry. The, the, tax system, the tax system works so that you can take those tax losses if you're investing in, in fossil fuels, but not if you're investing in solar right now. That's right. And so what's happened is is that, you know, the company I founded, Sun Edison, is now doing a yield co, which is a publicly traded vehicle that anyone can invest in and get a dividend yield owning solar. And that's coming out in the next few months. And what you're finding is is that, that vehicle is a really good vehicle for everyone to invest in and it doesn't need tax credits because the interest rates will come down so far for solar that it will be so cost-effective for Oklahomans to move. That's why the Oklahoma utilities are so worried about this. So how scalable is this? I mean, how, how plausible is it that we're going to see a significant portion of, of power being generated by solar in the next 10, 15 years? So Ray Kurzweil, who's the famous, you know, sort of exponential futurist. growth futurist, right. is now saying that by 2025, the majority of our power in the United States is going to come from solar. That's how confident 2025? Uh, that the growth rates. And in Australia, for instance, they've gone to one million homes now that have solar, only a population of 22 million people. So if the same thing happens wow. here that happened in Australia, we'd have over 10 million homes. We only have 500,000 right now. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. For growing numbers of people, the reality of global warming is so urgent, they've given up waiting for governments to act, and they've decided it's folly to expect the coal, oil, and gas companies ever to admit their products are burning up the earth. So these aroused citizens are going for the jugular. They're directing their efforts directly at the one place held sacred by the industry, the bottom line. It's called divestment a campaign to persuade investors to take their money out of fossil fuel companies. Foundations, faith groups, pension funds, cities, and universities are being urged to take the lead, to sell their shares in polluting industries and go fossil-free. On more than 300 college campuses, from Middlebury in Vermont to Berkeley in California, students are calling on their schools to divest. Sometimes they are rebuffed, as happened recently at Harvard, which at over $32 billion has the largest university endowment in the country. Last fall, the school's president said divestiture was neither warranted or wise. But this month, nearly 100 faculty members sided with the students. They said our university invests in the fossil fuel industry. We now know that fossil fuels cause climate change of unprecedented destructive potential. Divestment has worked once before and in a big way. 
three decades ago. Students, religious communities, and unions sustained a campaign against U.S. companies doing business with South Africa and helped put an end to apartheid. Only four months after his release from prison, Nelson Mandela came to California to say thank you to Americans who kept up the economic pressure. With me now are two people who are leaders of this new divestment movement. Ellen Dorsey is executive director of the Wallace Global Fund and a catalyst in the coalition of 17 foundations known as Divest Invest Philanthropy. Its members have agreed to pull out of fossil fuel stocks and invest in companies committed to climate change solutions. Thomas Van Dyke, a self-described child of corporate America, was so convinced of the power of socially responsible investing that he's made a career out of it. He's now Senior Vice President, Financial Advisor of RBC Wealth Management and Board Chair of As You Sow. That's a shareholder advocacy foundation. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having me. Skeptics say your campaign to divest is a flea on the tail of an elephant, a nuisance to the fossil fuel industry, but no real threat. How do you respond to that? Frankly, four years ago, I was incredibly pessimistic that we could have any impact on this climate change issue. In 2009, the governments of the world failed to come to any kind of meaningful agreement in the, at the Copenhagen meeting. In 2010, climate legislation failed in the U.S. Senate. And into that vacuum stepped a student movement. And they did take a play from the anti-apartheid playbook. And they said, we're putting the focus right on the industry itself. And because the industry is driving the problem, it is funding denial of the problem, it is refusing to advance safe and clean alternatives, and it's shutting down the policy process with campaign contributions and lobbying. And so by putting the target on the fossil fuel industry, the goal is not to have an immediate economic impact on the fossil fuel industry, but to isolate it as a moral pariah, like apartheid, like tobacco. Remember in South Africa days, they said, look, at divestment doesn't make any sense. And then Desmond Tutu said, we don't want our chains made more comfortable. We need to have people pull out to help with the economic transition of that society. I think divestment from fossil fuels is the same. Their vision of what the planet looks like and the idea of being able to drill and burn all the fossil fuels that they have on their balance sheets today is just something that civilization cannot survive. The fact that, uh, that ExxonMobil has come out, albeit with a, a, a ridiculous report on their stranded asset risks, um, they're already on the defensive. They're already having to defend their position on climate change, and that's success. That's movement. It's progress we haven't seen to date. What's the best argument made against what the two of you are asking college and university endowments to do? The one that impresses you, although you don't agree with it. Well, the one that doesn't work is that it costs return. That one I'm not impressed with at all, because right. there's no need for the endowments to give a return for divesting from fossil fuels. With apartheid, we yeah. literally asked foundations and pension funds to remove 40% of the S&P 500 from their portfolios. That's a heavy lift, 40% of the S&P 500. In the case of the Carbon Tracker 200, which is the 200 largest carbon producing companies, which is what the students are asking the endowments to remove, that only represents about 7.8% of the S&P 500. So it's a much smaller 
lift. If they divest from fossil fuels, what should they be investing in? I think that's a legitimate question to be asking. But I would actually turn that on its head and say, when we begin to move the assets, we will be catalyzing the innovation and the energy future that the world demands. And that they should be playing a role in that, particularly academic institutions, um, because of their, they are the center of innovation and research and education and the training of the leaders of the next generation. They're precisely the ones that should be trying to create that kind of new, those new models, those new energy models, those new investment models. And I think um, foundations also have a very important role. Our investments should be a, a kind of venture capital to, to create that innovation in, in investments. But take Harvard. Mm -hmm. It's the big fish in the pond, $32 mm -hmm. billion dollars in endowment. The president of Harvard says that what you two want, she didn't call you by name, but <laughs> we can imagine who she had in mind, is unwarranted and unwise, that it would come at a substantial economic cost to the university. Then there's Bowdoin College, small college in Maine with a billion dollar endowment, and the chief of Bowdoin's uh, billion dollar endowment says divesting would have cost the college $100 million over the last decade. And I suspect if she were sitting here, she would say to you, Tom Bendike, wouldn't that be fiduciary irresponsible on my part? I would say that's bad math. I would say you don't have creative enough people running your money for you if that's the case. What is a problem is you have these different hedge funds that they're involved in that have particular funds that they can't control what's actually held in that. And so they're worried they'll have to fire that particular hedge fund. And but they don't like to do that, and they don't particularly want to do, if they're they producing do good returns. But if enough endowments get together and say, hey, why don't you set up a sleeve that is fossil fuel free, and you can short the coal companies, and you know, and go long the solar companies, and you can and you can hedge that if you want. But you just can't be buying the top two hundred companies. My guess is, is given the size of that market, that those hedge funds will say, "Sure, we'll set up a sleeve for you guys. You know, we'll humor you." And if they put pressure on their managers to do that, my guess is the managers will do that. Right now, they're not willing to take that next step and pressure those managers. All they need to do is ask. I would also argue that looking back over the past ten years. Um, we've seen dramatic changes in the financial markets. And I think it's problematic to try and look at the past 10 years and predict the future. And if you look at the case studies of institutions like my foundation and other foundations that we're partnering with that have, in fact, divested from fossil fuels, invested in climate solutions, renewables, and clean tech, we've done very well in the market in the near term, short term, um, and we're confident when you look at the projections for renewables and you look at the risks, the financial risks of staying invested in fossil fuels over the long term, I feel like we are making the right bet. We are the ones investing in the future and we'll do well okay. I, and have done well. And I do think coal is a precursor to that. I mean, if you look at what coal's done for the last four or five years, coal has dropped dramatically and it's, it's a very poor performing In the market? Asset. In the market. Mm -hmm. Price shares too? Oh yeah, it's absolutely been crushed. And we think that oil could be, that could be a precursor to what might happen to oil in the next decade or so. So it's really about looking at the fiduciary risk and the valuation because if these oil companies don't responsibly deal with that, there's going to be a risk there associated with owning but, those companies. But let me shift gears a little bit because you raised this issue of fiduciary duty. And I would argue that any 
institution that receives charitable tax status because they serve the public good has to look at whether their investments are in fact serving the public good. And there could not be a arguably a more stark case about the role of the fossil fuel industry in driving climate change. And if you have a mission to protect the public good, climate change will impact that dramatically, whether your focus is education, whether your focus is the environment, whether your focus is human rights, climate change will impact your mission as a, as a charitable institution. And so I think as a fiduciary matter to protect your mission, you should be looking at your investments in fossil fuels. And when you couple that with the financial risks associated with staying in fossil fuels over the long term, because as a fiduciary, you're to be looking at the long-term viability of your investments. I think the ethical and the financial align in a pretty powerful way. And you keep on moving forward. Keep on moving forward. Keep on moving forward. Never turning back. Never turning back. Gonna keep on moving proudly. Keep on moving proudly. Keep on moving proudly. Never turning back. Never turning back. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism actually buying green power. So planet-killing energy giants control everything, right? That's the assumption most of us residing outside of deregulated, competition-rich Vermont live under. Coal, oil, natural gas, all are pumped into our homes by the companies we've always used or who bothered to drop a flyer into our mailboxes. It turns out we're wrong. There is competition for our heat and electricity, and it turns out it's not even that hard to find. In fact, Googling green utility choices yields more than 23 million hits, and they aren't Coke-funded opposition group websites championing the wonders of oil. They're mainly state-based search engines to help consumers find local alternatives to big-name brand companies. The U.S. Department of Energy website's Buying Green Power tab can connect you to the options in your state, many of which are cheaper than going through the obvious corporate conglomerate. Depending on where you live, your options vary due to ingenuity, availability, feasibility, etc. Not every area has offshore wind farms, for example, or access to Vermont's Cow Power program, which turns farming byproducts into energy. But even if your state hasn't implemented market competition for electricity, you should still be able to purchase green power or use a green pricing program. While the term green power doesn't necessarily mean the entirety of your energy will come from renewable sources such as wind, solar, geothermal, hydropower, and biomass, switching companies both reduces your carbon footprint and supports the development of alternatives. Use the link in the segment notes to find the options in your state and take the simple step toward reducing the strain on your wallet as well as the planet. And some insider information here is that the idea for this activism segment was ripped directly from my own life. I successfully just signed up to purchase
purchase wind power in place of whatever mix of dirty energy I was getting before. I signed up through ethicalelectric.com, which just happens to be the green uh, energy company in my area. And the process was completely painless. And I just got this letter from my uh, local utility a couple days ago. It reads, Dear customer, Pepco was notified on April 30th, 2014, that you made the following choices regarding your electric services. Ethical Electric will be your new energy supplier, and Pepco will continue to render your monthly bill. District of Columbia regulations mandate that the first supplier enrollment received by the utility is deemed the supplier selected. Therefore, Ethical Electric will become your new energy supplier effective June 11th, 2014, unless you contact Pepco's customer service operations, etc., etc., Pepco will continue to deliver electricity directly to your home or office. Now, what's additionally exciting is that if you live in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Ohio, or Illinois and want to sign up through the same company, you can do so and help out Best of the Left at the same time. It will not surprise you to hear that I have partnered with Ethical Electric, and you can go to ethicalelectric.com slash best and then sign up to buy local Pennsylvania wind power just as you normally would, and Ethical Electric will donate a portion of your electric bill to support this show. And nothing about how your energy is delivered will change. You'll continue to receive your normal bill from your local utility just as I am, but you'll be buying 100% wind energy and supporting Best of the Left at the same time. So go to ethicalelectric.com slash best and check it out for yourself. And if you do not live in any of those eastern or sort of midwestern states that Ethical Electric covers, like I said, just go to the Department of Energy's website, check out the Buying Green Power tab, and find out what options are available where you live. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war, intolerance, AIDS, obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action? But I've heard Foundation executives say, you know, we get it, Helen. We and Tom, you're asking us to take the high road. But to do the Lord's work, we need to get the highest return on our investments. And those fossil fuel companies deliver it. Should they take the high road at the risk of doing less of the Lord's work, less of their mission? I don't think, I don't think that is the right framing because I don't think they sacrifice returns. Right. So I would, I would no, contest there's no, there's that nothing out there hasn't affected that demonstrates that. So if you look back in time, in all the information that's out there, it doesn't support the fact that you have to give a return. It's something that they're hiding behind as opposed to acting. And that's, that's, that's part of the problem. For years they've said that if you do socially responsible investing, you're going to have to give a return. But in fact, having strong environment, social, and governance practices as a management team is actually best business practice so, is what so, it is. But I would argue something else. If you're a foundation and you're actually whatever your mission, but particularly if your mission is human rights or environment, how is it possible that you can have your investments undercutting the work of your grantees? If your investments are driving the problem that you're asking your grantees to solve, that's a problem. Those should be aligned, your investments and your grant making. Here's what work. one foundation executive would say to that. I talked to 
him last week, and he said, ask them how anyone's hands can be completely clean in a society as capitalist as ours. I think that's a fair question. I mean, the society is addicted to oil, and we need to get off of it, and we need to start moving aggressively in that way. There is nothing that would stop the fossil fuel industry from using the capital expenditures that it's it's currently the amounts of, of capital being expended for new fossil fuel energy. It's nothing that would stop them from instead shifting that to clean and safe energy sources. There's nothing stopping them from doing that. However, they're not. That says that we need to take action. Fossil fuel companies receive $1.9 trillion in subsidies globally on an annual basis. So here's this very, very profitable industry being funded by governments around the world to the tune of $1.9 trillion to basically drill more oil. So they're saying nothing's going to stop us. We have the regulators in our pocket. They're not going to make us change. We don't have a choice. We don't have a choice, and it's not really a question of what the fossil fuel industry is going to do with their reserves. It's a question of what we as a global society are going to do to orchestrate the energy transition that we need. If they burn those reserves, we cook the planet irreparably. That can't happen. And what is so powerful about this movement is that it is a, a true alignment between ethical and financial interests. Because not only do, must we act to stop the worst excesses of climate change, but financially it's the smart thing to do. We have to deflate that bubble before it bursts. I saw research recently from the University of Oxford that studied divestment movements, earlier divestment movements against the arms industry, the pornography industry, the gambling industry, and concluded that their direct financial impact on price shares was small. What makes you think this time is different, and how many billions of dollars would it take for you to nuke the energy business? I mean, to really make them hurt. Making them and making society realize that we have to get off of our addiction to oil is really the key. That we have to remove oil or limit oil or use it much more responsibly than we do today. As we, it, it can be measured in billions of dollars, but really what it is is saying, look, take your capital expenditures and invest them in something in clean technology, broadly defined. Now, I don't want to just take not just solar and wind, but very broadly across the entire economy. If the oil companies took their excess capital and did it, that would be a good thing. If the governments would take their subsidies, $1.9 trillion, and move it from fossil fuels and give it to clean technology, energy efficiency, buildings, LED lighting, promoting that, you could get catalytic change, significant innovation, job creation, and you wouldn't be affecting you know people who are generally economically disadvantaged. So I think that it's not just about measuring how much the company drops its access to capital. These are very, very wealthy companies, which is one of the reasons why we're trying to turn them into a moral pariah. Because, yes, we all do use oil for now, but we need to start using it much more wisely. And we have to make some choices. And we need to we need to spur that type of innovation like we did under Kennedy to go to the moon. We need to spur the same innovation to create a sustainable economy that's based on the energy of the future, not on the energy of the past. And Bill, that's ultimately what we need is to put a price on carbon. And we need to have a policy process that can be successful and is not captured by the influence of the fossil fuel industry. And that's, I think, the big play at stake.
do you ever stop to think, why are we having to do this? Why do we have to pressure corporations to be good stewards of the earth, and in this case of the future? I mean, shouldn't this be happening, happening from within them? Yes, and it is happening from within some corporations. So, for example, the corporations that are using lots of electricity right now, okay, they can go out and get a power purchase agreement for 20 years on renewable power, solar or wind, and they can lock in a price. If I have a huge electrical cost and it's bouncing all over the place because of natural gas, I can't go out and lock in natural gas for 20 years right now at six cents a kilowatt. I can lock in solar and wind between six and 10 cents a kilowatt, but I can't lock in natural gas. So my cost line goes all over the place. If I'm a business, what I care about is certainty. What I don't like is risk. Tell me what the price is, tell me what it's going to be for a long, long time, and I can model that. Put a tax on carbon, make it 25 bucks a ton, increase it $10 a ton a year for 20 years. That'll push it to $225 a ton. If that happens, I can model that. I can model my expenses. What I don't want is uncertainty. If you give me certainty, I can model that and allocate capital accordingly in investments that can make a difference. And climate change is nothing but unstable and uncertain. That's right. It creates more uncertainty, which drives corporations crazy. And the innovators, the best businesses are already realizing if they use their resources more efficiently, more productively, more sustainably, that they'll beat their competition within the very same industries. And they're outperforming. Because it's best business. It's ultimately best business. That's another reason why I'm so excited. This is a corporate accountability movement, truly, in, 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 in mm -hmm. its purpose. And if you meet with the leaders, the student leaders of this movement, some are business students, some are political science students, they are extremely sophisticated. They can sit down and talk to you about everything related to the climate science, to market trends for renewable energy, and they are part of a movement and, uh, that is bringing about change but we'll also be moving forward as corporate heads in the future. They are going to be our elected officials. They're going to run NGOs and foundations. And they will have cut their teeth on this movement. And they will believe that corporations can do it differently. Right. So I am optimistic. When you meet with these students, you can't help but be inspired when you think that they're going to be the ones that will run the energy companies of the future. But is, isn't it terribly hard to get people to act on what they don't see and we can't see? Well, that that's, that's the challenge. That's the challenge. And as Desmond Tutu said, I think it's true. You know, custodians of creation, and this is where I think the religious do play a role in this. As custodians of creation, that is not an empty title. We are stewards of God's Eden here. And interestingly enough, God has showed us through the powers of nature how we can actually create power through using the sun and wind in things that are ubiquitous, that we can tap it through our innovation by using our mind to figure that out. Doing it cleanly, efficiently, and sustainably, rather than owning a commodity, drilling it up, charging people for it, and ending society as we know it. That's the juxtaposition. And the students are like, this is cleaner, creates more jobs, it's more sustainable, it doesn't exploit the poor in, in the underdeveloped countries. And actually, you can get solar and wind at a much cheaper price than you can some of these oil. It, it doesn't pollute. It's much cleaner. And if we can't get our government to lead and to take effective action, then we do need the universities, the faith groups, the foundations, the pension funds 
to take catalytic action. And that's really what calling for divestment from fossil fuels and investment in climate solutions, the energy sources of the future, is what this is about. Hey Jay, this is Raul calling from Hawaii, and I'm just commenting about in your last episode, you, you made some comment at the end about something along the lines if, of if we legalize same-sex marriage, then why not polygamy next? And this is a really bad slippery slope argument. I mean, this is the kind of thing that opponents to same-sex marriage use all the time, you know, to say, if legalize same-sex marriage, then next we should have to legalize polygamy, or next we'd have to legalize pedophile adult child relationships or anything like that. And it's just really, I mean, there's really no connection between having same-sex marriage legalized and having these other things legalized. It's really just a, a logical fallacy. I mean, no good argument has ever started with, if we legalize same-sex marriage, then next we would have to legalize blank, fill in the blank with whatever you're saying. Uh, I mean, really, we shouldn't treat same-sex marriage and polygamy as any kind of a package deal. Like, if you have to legalize one, then you have to legalize the other. We should judge polygamy on its own merits. And that being said, polygamy is, is really not something that we as progressives should be in support of. I mean, I, I realize you, you might be kind of insulated from this living in, in New York, but in most of the country, polygamy is not like this happy, friendly, sex-positive, um, uh, progressive thing that you might think of it as. Uh, most of the support for trying to legalize polygamy in the country comes from people like fundamentalist Mormons, comes from people who want these very, very traditional and very repressive misogynist ideas of marriage, where one man is entitled to multiple women because each man is worth multiple women, but each woman is only worth a fraction of a man, and men can basically just treat women like property and collect as many as he wants. I mean, when we talk about polygamy, this is what polygamy is in most of the country. This is what polygamy is in most of the world. And it's not something that we as progressives should be supporting when it exists in this way. And I think to compare polygamy in this instance to same-sex marriage is to really do a disservice to the movement that's in support of same-sex marriage. It's really a disservice to homosexuals and people trying to seek marriage equality. And calling polygamy an instance of marriage equality is just as much of a problem because it's not like people are being treated differently. I mean, if, if you're homosexual, then that means you're different. You have a different sexuality than other people. If you want to have more than one spouse, like you're a man and you want to have two wives, you're not a different sexuality from other men. You just want to have more of the same thing. It's not like you're a different class that's being discriminated against. It's just the action that you're taking is illegal, not that you're a class of person that's specifically not being allowed to do this thing. So I really like your show in general. Um, I just kind of heard that at the end of the LGBT episode, the most recent one, and I had to chime in. So anyway, keep up the good work, Jay. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. And I'd just like to say that uh, I remember the conversation about polyamory going a little bit differently than just about paperwork. And it is true that marriage does have, you know, legal marriage does have implications outside of just your personal, personal relationship. So basically, when you go to the bank, 
you know, joint accounts when you have uh, medical decisions that need to be made. The doctor and the hospital have to know the nuances of this is a person you have sex with versus this is a person you're married to versus this is the person you share your bank accounts with. Those logistics do need to be worked out because that's, you know, when it comes to marriage, that's what the, the state aspect of marriage, that's part of what the implications are, is that there are people who have to change the way they interact with you based on this marriage contract. And one of the problems with polyamory is not so much, you know, in probate court and things like that, but also in, you know, many states, many jurisdictions in common law have immunity from having to testify against the person you're married to. Well, if, you know, one of the examples given was if I have, you know, a whole gang that's going to rob a bank, we can all marry each other and be immune from testifying. So is that a, is that a privilege that you want people to be able to extend to an unlimited number of people? Or is that something that we want to have some limit as to the number of people who can be immune from having to testify against you in a court of law? And, and so there was a little bit more than just, oh, we don't like it. Now, as far as, you know, how many people do you want to have sex with? If you want to live with 12 people, you know, some combination of men, women, and, and trans and everything in between, you're free to do that. But before we say you can be officially a state-sanctioned union with all those people, we have to define what that means, what those rights and, and privileges and immunities and everything that we give as, as from the state to that union, rather than just say, oh, well, we're just going to let marriage be, you know, between 50 people. Because like I said, there are, there are actual real-world consequences to expanding that beyond, you know, that one person you choose. So we are changing the contract by saying that gays can get married because it wasn't traditionally what it is. And, you know, I agree. Perfect. That's, that's, that's the way to go. But when it comes to polyamory, before we just jump into that thinking, you know, you can do whatever you want to do, there's some, there's some real consequences for the rest of the world out there that they have to, that people have to react to. And I, I don't think it's right to just, to just say, oh, well, the, the, the fact that you're a bank or a hospital or a policeman or a judge or whatever and you got to deal with this ambiguity is your problem. I think, you know, before we give a state sanction to polyamory and, and actual rights and immunities, we have to discuss what those should be. Thanks. Um, enjoy the show. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And I will be responding to the uh, the couple of messages uh, that we heard today. Uh, but first, uh, I'm, I'm going to play this clip because... Uh, I had the same conversation with my friend David Pakman, who uh, you should be familiar with by now, and he did a clip on his show that sums up almost the entire argument uh, in and of itself. So I figure I'll just play that and then follow up with some uh, closing thoughts afterwards. Welcome back to the show. I mentioned at the beginning of the show I was in Washington, D.C. over the weekend, and I saw a bunch of people, including Jay Tomlinson, Best of the Left podcast. And one of the conversations we got into, Jay Tomlinson and uh, the Young Turks marketing director, Aaron Wysocki, and myself, was that Jay mentioned on his show he had had a conversation about polygamy. And we we kind of started talking about uh, the issue, and Jay said, you know, is there really a progressive argument against polygamy? If it's consenting adults... 
aren't we really making the same arguments that are made against gay marriage, against polygamy? And is there really, you know, this isn't the stupid, like, are people going to marry animals? Animals obviously can't consent. Or are people going to marry children if gay marriage is legalized? Children can't consent. This is adults who consent. Why can't you have a marriage involving more than two people? So I started going through it, and I want to have this conversation with you guys. It doesn't seem right or anything along those lines. It's certainly a moral judgment. And people make moral judgments against gay marriage all the time, and we don't consider those arguments valid. So right. let's also not consider them valid here. Marriage isn't defined that way. That even if you say, well, forget about the gay marriage part. Marriage is, is between two consenting adults of any gender. Arguments about marriage definition also don't resonate because those are also often used to prevent gay marriage, marriage equality, so maybe we can't use those. Um, so then people will say, well, polygamy has been used in cases where people who are underage are, are coerced and under, you know, there's spousal abuse under uh, polygamy, but those exist in monogamous relationships as well, and we're not looking to outlaw, outlaw those relationships either. So what, what is the argument? I mean, I started thinking, I'm not a guy who is uh, uh, into polygamy, you know, and I think that uh, the, the Mormon churches, uh, well, you know, uh, officially they're against it, but the history of the Mormon church with polygamy, I find it to be disturbing and, and uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of it. But when you think about it, what is a progressive argument against polygamy? A progressive argument against polygamy? One that does not depend on the same types of arguments that the right makes <clears throat> against gay marriage. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Natan? Uh, it's hard for me to think of what would constitute a progressive argument, but I have a couple problems with this. Like, I have no personal problem with it, except if we talk about two things. One is adultery. So, for example, adultery is something that legally can favor a party, the one that was the victim of it, in a divorce lawsuit. Okay, stop right there. I want to address that. This is the same argument that some people make, which is, listen, Things like inheritance and child custody and and adultery, right? Those are issues. Logistical complications. We're having a discussion of whether we think this is this is uh, uh, something we could be for or against. Logistical complications are not a good reason well, no, to be for or against. Let something. me let me explain what I mean. When we talk about same sex equality, same sex marriage equality, we're talking about applying the exact same sets of rules that are now applied to heterosexual couples to same-sex couples. Okay. When we're talking about this, we would actually have to apply different rules because adultery is something that has legal standing in a lawsuit, and it would, ha it would basically have to be that when you get married in a polygamous scenario, you're essentially forfeiting that as a potential future reason for divorce. Okay, so let's say you forfeit that. All I'm saying is that it, it's, it's difficult to talk about this in terms of equality the way we talk about same-sex marriage because you would actually, to make it work, you would have to apply different rules. The other thing would be, what about the children? Now, you could. Well, there are anti-gay. Yeah, there are anti-gay activists that uh, try to. You know, they cite bogus studies that say that children of homosexual couples that are adopted or or whatever um, have you know worse outcomes for whatever, which we know is bogus. But let's say a study came out that said that it isn't specifically relating to polygamous marriages. Right. Would that change whether we should sanction it? Uh, no, I don't think so. So if, if children of polygamous marriages are ten times more likely to commit um, robberies, for example, I'm just making it up. Yeah. You, that would have absolutely no effect on your position of whether that should be legal. I, I think 
my instinct is to say it would, Lewis. But when I really think about, well, what are the structures by which I, I've determined that marriage equality for gay and lesbian couples is okay? Um, I think I, I would have to say that can't really be the deciding factor as to whether it's legal or not. I don't know. I, I Again, I'm not for polygamy or anything, but I'm trying to think what is really the progressive argument against it, and I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I can't think of a progressive argument against it. I can think of, I mean, I, I, I'm against it in general because I think people can barely handle marriage. We've gotten over 50% <laughs> well, yeah, this divorce rate. I mean, this, just it's the a pragmatic mess, argument. Yeah, the mess that this would create would, would be insane. But progressive argument, yeah, I can't think of one. Okay, so that covers most of the basic ideas on this, but I'll go ahead and get into some of the specifics brought up by the callers. Um, one of the many points brought up by the, the first caller was that people who prefer to practice polyamorous relationships are not born that way, and so they are not being discriminated against for something that is inherent to their being. And my answer to that is, so what? Personally, if homosexuality was something that people did choose, that, that there was no dispute about that, everyone agreed that, yeah, like some people choose to be straight and some people choose to be gay, I would not find that to be a rational uh, argument for why it would be then okay to discriminate against gay people just because they're choosing to do it. I think that people should just have the freedom to do what they want to do, whether it's a choice or not. And on the idea of uh, gangs all marrying each other, as uh, as Nathan brought up, I believe that marriages of convenience with the intent to commit fraud is already a crime. Uh, you know, just like a marriage that exists only on paper for the sake of one of the parties gaining citizenship. And and you know, and then similarly on the bank robbing issue, if a bank robbing duo rather than a gang can already commit this fraud. Uh, you know, fraudulently get married just so they can rob a bank and not have to uh, testify against each other. You know, we don't see that as an argument to ban, to ban monogamous marriages. But in regards to Nathan's message, like in its totality, no one is saying that there aren't details that need to be worked out. I'm just saying that anything outside of core progressive values isn't a good enough argument to prevent consenting adults from forming marriage contracts with multiple people. Because it really seems to me like the number two is as arbitrary as gender in the uh, gay marriage discussion. And even the feminist argument about how the history of plural marriages be, is, you know, patriarchal abomination, which horribly oppresses women, that argument still sort of falls flat for me because the history of monogamous marriages have also historically been patriarchal abominations, which horribly oppress women. And no one seems to believe that, you know, we missed our opportunity and we should have banned marriage a long time ago to try to fix the patriarchal problem with them. So the key for me is to come down on the right side of the core issue, which to me is people being allowed to do what they want to do as long as they're not hurting other people. We're talking about consenting adults here. And this means letting people have the freedom to create whatever contracts they want, to have their relationships recognized by the state. And then we fight against all the patriarchy in general and then the religious cults that brainwash women into subservience in particular as a byproduct of that. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to 
you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And Stories and forget who it is with